the opinion is divided on my scruff, okay? Some people think it looks great, some people don't. This is two weeks. Already it is bringing the results I had hoped. I spoke at a luncheon this week and I explained to them why I was scruffy. And they uh, responded positively about foster care. And one of the fellows came up afterward and he said, you know what, I've been thinking and praying about this and I believe God has prompted me through what you've said today to uh, investigate and find out some more. So that's the point of this, all right? And uh, it's okay. I've never had this in 42 years. So I said, what does Janet think of it? Janet's one of the negatives, okay? All right, she's not happy with the scruff. About 42 years now, I've been clean shaven pretty well. I'm enjoying not shaving. Now, look, Ward, if you want to grow a beard, this would be the time to do it. Yeah, it's tough, huh? Yeah. Well, it's November. No shave November. And so uh, Crossroads NOLA is saying if you want to grow a beard and just call attention to the need of foster kids in our community and pray for them as you look at yourself in the mirror, that's a good way. It's a good reminder. All right? So already it's bearing fruit, and that is good. I'm in Esther chapter 4. We've been in Esther now for six weeks, and we have today and two or three more messages on Esther, and then we'll be in the Christmas season. In the Christmas season, we're going to emphasize home for Christmas, and I'm looking forward to home for Christmas. I'm going to talk about the five places we know Jesus uh, stayed, and it'll be fun to look at Christmas from the point of view of home for Christmas. In verse 15 of chapter 4, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. This is the response to Mordecai saying, Who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You remember last week when uh, Mordecai says to her, she she sends back and says, There's only one law. If you appear before the king without an invitation, you die unless he extends his scepter to you. And Mordecai sends back this word. Do not think that just because you're in the king's house that you of all the people of the Jews will be spared if you are silent. For if you are silent, God's going to raise up relief and deliverance from another place. And you and your family are going to be lost. And who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther's like a daughter to him. He adopted her. She was an orphan. Her parents died. And now he is urging her to do a very dangerous thing. Mordecai, who loves her, who has raised her, is urging her to do something very dangerous on behalf of her people. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So Esther survived. She said, if I perish, I perish. It is common wisdom you must pick your battles carefully. You choose your battles carefully. Have you ever heard that before? Sometimes we fight battles that just aren't worth the trouble. And so in the corporate world, with the company, in the boardroom, in various places where we live and work, we choose our battles carefully. Sometimes we say of a decision or an issue, that's a mountain I will die on. Have you ever said that? Sometimes we'll say it the other way, that's not a mountain I will die on. But sometimes we say that is a mountain I will die on. I feel like I've been close to death on two or three mountains in my life. All right? Really, I have. I got stuck on a cliff taller than the front of this church, about 60 feet tall, climbing mountains uh, in the Rockies. And I was about 60 feet up. I'd gone from crag to crag, crevice to crevice, no ropes, just me crawling up there thinking I could do it. And I got there high enough where I, if I fell, I was going to die. And I couldn't see another crevice to grab, and it was till about 10 feet to the top. And I remember the surge of panic that came over me clinging to this cliff, thinking, I am going to die. And then thinking, I am a stupid man. <laughs> this was stupid. This was not a good choice. This is not a mountain to die on. I remember that. I called my brother yesterday, and uh, we were just reminiscing a little bit, and he said, yeah, you know, David, you used to be not afraid of heights, but in your old age, you got afraid of heights. I said, what are you talking about? He says, that, that mountain in Big Ben, when I climbed up there and I was hanging onto the tower, you know, on this tumble of rocks at the very peak of the mountain, and I looked around, and where were you? You'd left. I didn't know you were leaving. And you said you just didn't want to be up there. You're afraid you're going to fall. Don't you remember that? I said, yeah. And I remember when you jumped across a four-foot gap at the Grand Canyon, and it was 400 feet to the bottom. I said, I didn't do that either. <laughs> Actually, my brother Tom, who lives in Toronto, can credit me with several rescues of his life. One in particular at Mount St. Helens. When he insisted on climbing up this rubble, all it was was debris from the eruption. And if he knocked a rock loose, as we did several, they just ding, 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 and went over a 200-foot cliff into the crevice. I said, Tom, we're not climbing that. We could cause a landslide. He starts climbing it. I tugged on him. I said, Tom, we're not climbing this. It's too dangerous. We passed the do not go beyond this point about two miles ago. We're leaving tracks in the ash that nobody's gone in. I know, we're breaking the law. It was crazy. Say, so we should not be here. You're going to kill us all. 
There are some mountains you just don't want to die on. I didn't want to die on Mount St. Helens. But there are some mountains that you say, I'm going to take that mountain, and that's a mountain I will die on. And we use that lingo pretty loosely. We use it about conviction. We don't actually, literally mean when we say it that we're going to die on that mountain. We don't actually believe we're going to physically die on the mountain. But in regard to the corporation, in regard to our morality and our ethics, in regard to what we believe is right, we will die on that mountain. Esther says, I'm going to do this. This is a mountain I will die on. If I perish, I perish. Literally, I will die on this mountain. Some of you are facing a big decision. Maybe you are wrestling with an issue that has confronted you. And there is a price, there is a cost, there is a risk. When you are about to make a decision that is a matter of conscience and it involves risk, sometimes great risk, to your job, your occupation, your own, your own person. Esther is a good place to go and say, all right, how do I do this? And here's what Esther did, and I urge you to do when you are about to take on a mountain upon which you are ready to die, okay? Prepare with prayer. Esther does this. Mordecai says, you got to do this. You've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther says, all right then, uncle, I want every Jew in Susa to be praying for me. She wants prayer. Now, as we've observed, the writer of Esther does not use the word prayer ever, nor the word God, nor any other religious language. This book is completely free of religious language, terms that are specifically religious. Other than the word fast, and people fast in non-religious ways. And you might ask yourself, well, what are these people fasting for if they're not petitioning God on behalf of Esther? And the answer is, that's what they're doing. They're going to the place of worship, to the synagogue, which has sprung up in the time of the exile. They are far from Jerusalem. They cannot go to the temple. They build the teaching rooms, the synagogues, where they read the scriptures and they have discussion and instruction about their scriptures. And they're going to those places. They're going to the family meetings. They are fasting and they are praying. Esther insists that they pray. She wants prayer for three days. She wants prayer for a very specific moment, which is recorded in this text. And it is great for you to identify the very specific thing that you want prayer about, okay? Esther wants prayer for the moment that she appears uninvited in the presence of the king. That's when he either does this or this. He either extends the scepter or off with her head. It is against the law to appear in the presence of the king without an invitation. 
So she wants three days of fasting and prayer from all of the people in the city of Susa, all of them to be alerted, all of the Jews, all of her kinsmen. And they are praying for this specific moment, fasting and praying over this specific moment. Maybe you are going to walk into the presence of your boss and you're going to speak something. You're going to deliver a message. Maybe it's a message of moral judgment. Maybe it is something else, but you feel compelled to do it, to pray for that moment. That's the key. Now, there is a long tradition, oft practiced. When you have a moment like this, when there is something going on in your life, and you say, I've got to ask God to help with this moment, to solicit the prayers of people around you. Would you pray for me? Sometimes we hesitate because we think, look, God hears my prayers just like he hears those people's prayers. God can hear my prayers. Why do I need more people praying? Is the volume of prayer the point? I can't really unravel and unpack for you the mystery of prayer in all its dimensions. I don't really know. But I will tell you this. Esther asked every Jew in Susa to pray for her. And it is not uncommon. Jesus asked the disciples to pray at the moment of his sorrow and grief and decision in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for me. And he invited three of them to come close and pray with him in that private place. So they were all praying for him, some of them distant, some of them close. At his invitation, did Jesus' prayers not reach the Father? Surely they did. He invites them into the circle of prayer because he wants them there, for one thing. He wants them to know and he wants them to talk to the Father about his situation. He wants them aware. Too often we suffer and act in private, supposing it is just as good as moving forward with the support of other people. And I would suggest to you it's not as good. It is a better choice to say to the people who love you and to the folks who will pray for you, pray for me, I've got a decision to make. It's going to happen Wednesday morning. I just want you to remember to pray for me. Throughout the Bible, this practice is observed and recommended, and I think you ought to do it. We do it naturally sometimes. Rebecca did so when Graham had his accident. She just posted it on Facebook in the middle of the night, sitting in a couch in PICU. She just put it on Facebook. Please pray for my baby Graham. She wanted the prayers of people. It was a natural movement of her heart. It multiplied from there to a team of people praying for this baby boy. A team that reached not only across the country coast to coast, but eventually around the world. 
so that I suspected within a few days the prayers for Graham never ceased to come before the Father. That as the sun rotated around the earth and came up in the morning, sometimes all night long, people were praying for Graham. We were praying, you were praying. I go all these different places. When I spoke to this lunch on Tuesday, somebody said, we were praying for Graham. This great prayer effort pleased the Father in heaven. It was a comfort to Graham's mother and to his grandfather. And the result of the petitions that were sent up to the Father is that Graham is with us today. You say, well, don't you attribute that to medical ingenuity? I attribute that to God. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. You say, well, you took him to the doctor. I sure did, but who do you think gives us doctors? <laughs> Who do you think gives us technology? Who gives us minds to think and hands to work? Who gives us all these things? Ultimately, it is God who heals. However we get better, if we take the medicine or not, we go to the doctor or not, ultimately, it is God who heals whatever methods we might use. We give God glory. It is appropriate when you get well, when you recover, for you to thank God and give God glory. And I know to some people it sounds strange for you to give God glory because you're better now, you're over the flu or you got over the injury that you sustained. But it gives credit where credit is due. Esther rallied the troops. She said, I want you to pray for me. For three days, focus on prayer. Now. Esther asked them to do something that helped them keep their focus. Not go unshaven, all right? That helps keep your focus. Now, I've been thinking about foster kids more than usual. But if you do a fast, that keeps your focus too. The disciples and Jesus were not practicing the regular fast that John's disciples and the Pharisees were practicing. They actually fasted twice every week. They stopped eating for some period of time, an extended time. And they came to Jesus and they said, why aren't you and your disciples fasting? The style is John comes neither eating nor drinking. And his opponent said, he has a demon. Jesus comes eating and drinking and they say, behold, a glutton and a wine-bibber. So you're going to get criticized either way, I suppose. But Jesus is the one who comes eating and drinking, enjoying the fruit of the earth and the good things of life. And they asked him about it, and he said, you know, while the bridegroom's here, the bride's not going to fast. One of these days they will. It's interesting that there is no command to fast that you can really find in the New Testament. There's an observance, uh, an observance that people fast. Jesus said they're going to fast in those days. There's not really a command to fast, and it's not talked about much in the New Testament. If you look up fast and fasting, you'll find it a little bit. 
But it is certainly appropriate to fast. And sometimes we fast together. Sometimes we call for a fast and we say, let's just get out of our normal routine of eating because we do it all the time, not just three days, uh, three times a day, but about 20 times a day we grab for something, right? And so it's a great way to focus our energy, to take our, our mind to the place of prayer where we want to be. And I would encourage you, if you're praying about something that is very much on your heart, to add this dimension of fasting to it, invite others to do it if you like, and fast and pray as Esther called her people to do. Now, you prepare in prayer and then you proceed with determination. Esther says, I want you to pray and fast for three days. Fast for three days and then I will go before the king. I'm going before the king. You calculate the risk. You decide what is right. When you make the call, you proceed with determination. That's what Esther does. She goes forward on the track she believes is right. She believes it deeply enough that she says, I'm willing to die on this mountain. If I perish, I perish. There are times that you will make a decision to go down a path that could be very costly to you and your family. But you do so because you believe it is right and you commit your way unto the Lord, you trust Him in this path you have chosen, believing that whatever takes place, this is the right thing to do. I'm reminded of the Hebrew children, those three fellows who would not bow to the golden idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up, you remember? And Nebuchadnezzar blows the horns, they all bow except these three. And he wants to give them a chance, you know. He says, okay, we're going to do this again, guys. Let me, let me go over what we're doing here. We got this 90-foot statue made of gold, looks like me, yeah. We want you to bow down, okay? When the, when the horns blow, just bow down. Be a patriotic member of the kingdom. And the three Hebrew children say, our God is big enough to deliver us from your furnace. But if he does not, Know this, we don't need another chance, King. We're not going to bow down to your idol nor worship and serve your gods. We're not going to do it. Whether he saves us from the fiery furnace or not, we're not going to bow down. So they proceed on their course at risk of their lives. Esther proceeds on her course at risk of her life with determination. You remember when Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem? His friends were saying, don't go there. Some of his counsel was, they want to kill you. We don't want you to go to Jerusalem. And, and Luke records, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I mean, you could look at Jesus and tell... He was headed to Jerusalem. 
even those enemies wanted to kill him. Sometimes when you've processed the information, you come to the decision and you say, I believe this is right. I am deeply convicted this is right. Be confident in your conviction before you act, okay? Be driven by what you believe is right. Not always will you have a 100% certainty that the path you are choosing is the only path to take. But you will have an overwhelming sense that this is indeed right. And if I am in error, I am erring in my calculation, not in my heart. Because my heart's in the right place, I believe I'm doing what is right and good and true, and therefore I am going forward. When you make a decision on a mountain you're willing to die on, you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing. You don't want to have a moral dilemma about it. You don't want the decision to be shady in itself. That kind of decision will plague you the rest of your life. You step outside of the bounds of conviction and of the, the limits of your conscience to do something and to proceed in a way that you know is off-center morally. It is hard to recover from such a thing. It haunts you when you make a decision for the wrong reason or you compromise your ethics because then when the cost comes, you just drop your head. But if you believe with all your heart it's the right thing to do, you have the conviction of your heart. This is right. You're not just debating and calculating. You are convicted it's the right thing to do. Then you proceed. And even if you lose it all, it's okay because you are seeking to do what is right. There's a tremendous courage in that, isn't there? It's not like Esther is the smartest person in the world. We don't come away from the story saying, wow, what an intellect. We come away from the story saying, wow, what, what courage. She was daring. I mean, she had the conviction of her conscience and she did what she believed was right, potentially at the greatest cost that she could pay. We do not have inside ourselves some pool of courage from which we can draw if we get in a crisis. Courage doesn't get meted out that way. Courage is given to us in the moment when we need it. We are supplied by the Father in heaven with a courage in the moment of crisis. Corrie ten Boom lived through difficult times. You remember her story from World War II. When she was a little girl, she told her father, I just don't know how I can endure all these things that are coming on our family. And it was very grim. And her father said to her, Corey, when we go ride the train, when do I give you the money for the train fare? And she said, when I get on the train. And her father wisely said, Corey, that's how God does with us. 
we may think we don't have the resources in ourselves. There is no pool of courage in us. We might feel fearful. But in the moment, God gives you the fear, the courage that is needed, the determination and the strength to go forward in the crisis. Don't worry that you will not have the resources. God provides the resources when you need it. Jesus said this to the disciples who were worried about coming before kings and rulers and having to witness to their faith. What are we going to say? He said, don't worry about it. When you get in the moment, the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say. There is great comfort in realizing that God the Father is walking with you in the journey that you're on, in the path that you tread, and that he has the resources, all that is necessary, to provide for you in the moment of crisis. I'm at the end of my rope, Lord. I just can't take any more. And then something else happens. And you feel like Job. But in the crisis, and even the expanding crisis, God still continues to provide. Esther demonstrates this kind of courage. It's the courage that says, I'm doing the right thing, acting on behalf of others, and I'm willing to suffer great loss if that's the result of this decision. Jesus had the courage to go to the cross, not because it was good for him, but good for us. The cross kind of courage is the willingness to take the hard path when it is the right path and to care for others even when you are in pain. Bow with me, please. Maybe somebody here is at a point of decision and you'd just like me to pray for you. You got a decision to make this week or soon, you're wrestling with it. As we just bow our heads together, would you slip your hand up and say, would you just pray for me? Just put it up and put it down. Okay, I'll be praying for you. I'm going to say a prayer for you in just a minute. Yes, I see you. Any others? I see those hands. Okay. All right. God sees those hands. Yeah. Anybody else? Heavenly Father, you've seen these hands of brothers and sisters who face a point of decision, who are wrestling with a crisis, a problem, and need your wisdom. God, I pray for wisdom for the men and women who just raised their hands. I pray your Holy Spirit will give them insight and understanding that they will truly understand the situation that they're in. God, I pray for courage for each one of them, the courage of their conviction. Lord, as they know what is right and best and true, then, God, to have the strength and courage to do it. Provide them the determination that is necessary to continue down a course that may be longer than they at first suspected. And yet, God, give them the strength they need 
in every moment, every day. God, I thank you that you are the one who supplies moment by moment all that we need. Thank you for the courage you give, for the strength you give, the wisdom you give in our time of need. We depend upon you. We thank you for this table, this Lord's Supper, where we learn how it is you yourself who provides for us. In Jesus' name.